The Guardian. Hello and welcome to a special combined edition of Media Talk and Tech Weekly. We're calling it the Tech Media Talk Weekly Podcast. Yep, it's as catchy as that. It's cost-saving and groundbreaking at the same time. I'm John Plunkett and with me today are two voices with whom Tech Weekly listeners will be particularly familiar. It's The Guardian's Head of Technology, Jemima Kish, and Mr. Digital Tech Writer, Stuart Dredge. Welcome both. Now, this week's a bit different, not just because it's the, uh, let me get this right, the Tech Media Talk Weekly Podcast. The uh, Weekly Podcast, even. I like that, yeah. Yeah, there you uh, go. You can have that for free. Take the vowels out and you're down with the kids. But we have swapped. We have swapped Studio One at the Guardian HQ in King's Place, and we are, listeners, if you could see around us, we are at the Guardian's coffee shop in the heart of Shoreditch to discuss how traditional media players are stacking up against their online rivals. What can Sky and HBO learn from Netflix and Apple? Can Google make the leap from hosting video content to producing it? And can the Guardian's coffee shop get any hotter? Expect equal measures, it says here, of informed insight and wild speculation. Well, one out of two ain't bad. It's all coming up in just a moment. I've got my Americano here, or it turns out it's called a long black, or is it Guardian coffee? Is that is that more widely used, and I'm not aware of it, Jemima, or is that a Guardian innovation? You're talking to the wrong person, because I can't drink coffee. So I can tell you about tea. Stuart, can you drink coffee, and have you had a long black? I came in and ordered a tea too. I'm very disappointed to them, I think. Tea too? That's a rival publication, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Move on. Uh, but Stuart, we are just a few minutes from the Silicon Roundabout, and I had lunch today with someone who will remain nameless, who I'm not making up honestly, who when I said Silicon Roundabout didn't really know what I was talking about. So give us a, give us a one minute lowdown if you would. Who's there? On Silicon Roundabout? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a grotty old roundabout in Old Street. Um, Talk it up. Which is, uh, well, which was a. Uh, it is, you're right, it is. Cheap community, so lots of startups moved there, and it became Silicon Roundabout. And Silicon Roundabout is kind of a, it's a joke name, really. I think people there are quite knowing about the fact that it's a grotty part of London, but they're all there. And who's there? Give us one or two names. I'm going to I'm going to guess, Audioboo. Uh, Audioboo is uh, Songkick are there. Um, SoundCloud. You know, so a lot of the music startups around there, uh, and then also um, a bit further across, people like Moshi Monsters, Mind Candy. Ah. Um, other anyone who's digital media basically is is yeah. But Jamama Google's coming to King's Place near the Guardian. Is that right? Or not King's Place, but King's Cross at least? They are. If you walk um, sort of vaguely north of King's Cross, you see a sliver of land that looks like a driveway. Apparently, that's where their new HQ is going to be. Do you know, it used to be a, a driving range, uh, a golf driving range. When? Uh, well, about 10 years ago. Right. I left my clubs there once and it came back and it shut down. So they will forever be part of... I'm not making it up. They will, you could, if, you, if you sliced it really badly, you could get the 815 to Cambridge. But I never did that deliberately. Time to move on. We're going to be looking at how the old and new media industries are shaping up in the digital world. Where are the fights being fought? Well, last week, Netflix opened up a new battleground. It was at the Emmys, the industry's equivalent of the Oscars. Uh, or the TV answer to the Sony Radio Awards, if you like that sort of thing, where the video-on-demand service walked away with 14 nominations. That's 14 nominations for Netflix, including nine for its homegrown $100 million drama series, House of Cards. Uh, now, Stuart, there's a, a, a Netflix talks the talk, and uh, it's got a lot of critics on side, but um, what are the numbers? Is it making money? Is it, is it a force? Yeah, it's growing very fast. So Netflix started as uh, one of those services where you basically order DVDs by post and then post them back to them and watch them. And now it's very big in streaming films, TV shows. So its latest quarterly results, which came out last week, it made about just over a billion dollars in revenue. And it made a small profit of $29 million, which by the standard of streaming services is quite good. Spotify is losing lots of money in music, for example. And now they are pumping a lot of money into making their own shows. 
and yeah, getting getting recognition for them. Do you mind? But why has it been a success? It's been, is it, have they got the right content, or well, have they got a good marketing strategy, or is it cheap? Were, well, if you were being sceptical, you'd say that it was a success because they paid a hell of a lot of money, more than the competitors, to win that piece of content. And you could argue that it's a, a, a flash vehicle to show off their distribution network, and it wouldn't be the first time that a broadcast distribution channel had paid through the odds to get good content just to show off the service that they want to sell. It's a, it's a fascinating industry at the moment because you've got um, Netflix paying lots of money for content. You've got Amazon who are commissioning original content too. You've got YouTube pumping, I think it's $200 million into original channels. You've suddenly, 300 got, actually. Million. Yeah. You've suddenly got all this money swilling around for people to make TV shows or TV-like shows completely outside the traditional system where it's even broadcasters wondering what's going on and, and what it means. And uh, do you remember they've got lots of money to spend, or maybe one for you, Stuart, but also uh, a bit like Sky over here. People talk about the people who make programs for these guys say that they get a lot more kind of creative freedom and they don't, they don't get the interference that they get from, from traditional broadcasters, which, which is another reason why they go there. I think so. In the States, it's, big, it's part of a wider trend, I think, of things like HBO, cable networks, who are saying, you know what, you can have, you can have nudity, you can have violence in, and we don't really mind. And Netflix is carrying on that, so... Over there, the networks have been quite conservative. It's been drawing them towards letting down their restrictions a little bit. So there is a kind of impact happening. And they've got a very quotable uh, chief exec, uh, Jemima, Netflix, in uh, Reed Hastings, who is forever predicting the death of old-fashioned linear TV. Well, they wrote a very aggressive pitch document for the future of the space, which is very much about apps and content in a more kind of digestible, far more future-thinking way. And if you look at where television could and should be going with internet-enabled television, we're really behind where we could and should be. The first really interesting thing to tackle is the interface, and we'll probably move on to Apple in a minute. But one thing Apple has been able to do is redefine a product category by making it very consumer-friendly and putting a really beautiful interface on it. So how you interact with that content uh, is really important, and through the remote is not enough. They've just bought a a motion sensor control company called Prime Sense, interestingly enough. The second thing is discovery, which is absolutely critical to finding good stuff, especially if that content is fragmented and broken down into apps, say. And Stuart is our apps wizard, our apps expert on the tech site, and he can tell you about this. But there are 900 million active apps on the App Store, and for mobile we're already seeing a huge problem in being able to access the short tail of apps there. It's great news if you're in the top 20. Anything beyond that is a bit of a nightmare. And if TV's going that way, then that is a navigation problem that they have to solve. Yes, true. I mean, that is the advantage of good old-fashioned linear TV, is that you get there, you've got your front page, you've got BBC One, you've got Down to Five, a couple of Sky channels, BBC Three and Four. And that's all there on a plate, and it takes 30 seconds to read through and decide, no, I'll go and do the washing up. Yeah, but the content's but, no good. Well, the content's exactly. no good. I, t- I turn on the television. Sorry, I do this every night. I turn on the television. I look at channels one, two, three, and 4, maybe 4 catch-up, maybe film 4. Then I turn the television off, and I turn the computer on and watch catch-up. I do it every night. But you see, get back to Mr Plunkett, for instance. I've done that. I think nothing on, taking your example. But then where do I go? And this is your point about the, uh, you know, how, what kind of uh, engagement. How do you find stuff that's decent to watch uh, on, on demand? You know, where do I go? How is it simple? Because there's four or five different kind of catch-up services I could subscribe to I can't afford. I mean, where do I start to go? A bit like the app. Would you like, would you, do you want to borrow a tenner? Could I? Yes. Right? Well, I, I believe Netflix is free in the first month. I go to Twitter if I want recommendations. If I've got a very, I've got two small children. If I've got a rare moment to watch a film, I'll ask people 
I'd like something like, you know, one of the Bourne films. Anyone got any good suggestions? What do you do, Stu? Well, this is true. This is where, even when live TV, Twitter work acts well. So that, that whole Sharknado film recently, where in the States... Sharknado, you may need to explain. Sharknado, it's, it's a, a tornado full of sharks. That's essentially the plot. Oh, sorry, of course, you don't need um, to explain. It was airing on some relatively obscure channel in the States, but Twitter made it into a hit because everyone's saying there is a film about sharks in a tornado. Go and watch it. But uh, the likes of Netflix are working very hard on Discovery. So in their results this week, they said something like three quarters of the hours watched come from their recommendations. People saying, looking at what they've been recommended by Netflix rather than searching for something specifically. And they're also starting to commission shows based on this data. So there's a show called Hemlock Grove on Netflix recently. Oh, yes, from the guy that did Hostel. Exactly, and so on, so Eli Roth. So what Netflix did was they looked at their data, saw people were loving watching horror movies on Netflix. They're loving watching his horror movies, Eli Roth. So we're going to give him loads of money to make a new series for us. We're going to screen it. We're going to recommend it to the people we know will like it. And the critics said it was basically rubbish or not that good. And yet they've recommissioned a second series, but it's done very well because they, they knew people would like it. They pushed it to the people who would like it, and, and it's done well. Well, data-led commissioning is a really interesting area. Is that going down a kind of television version of the Daily Mail's sidebar of shame when it comes to commissioning? Should you go, you know, you should look at the data of programmes that you know have done really well and commission purely on that? Or do you want to be a little bit more editorially sort of noble? You could end up in a bad place, couldn't you? Vox Populi, Vox Diaboli. Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> One of them with knobs on. There's a big thing in music, actually, about music recommendations, where people say the problem with it is if it keeps refining and refining, you end up with Coldplay, whatever you started with, because it keeps giving you what it knows you like and things like that and things like that. Sounds like purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the danger of these things. Like that, that TV traditionally has been, you might happen upon something you didn't know you would like. It might be a documentary about something happening in a part of the world you don't know about, and you watch it. And that's been, that's been the whole Rethian thing, of like, we're going to inform you without you really deciding. But some of the data which is more like, we know you like X, so we're going to give you more of X. Well, it comes That's back true. to discovery, doesn't it? It comes back to discovery, and there's a principle we work with at The Guardian, which is this kind of a Venn diagram of three elements of discovery, where you have editors, robots, and friends, or the, or the social layer, if you like. And when you have those three things working together, then you have really intelligent, meaningful discovery. But no TV company of any description is coming close to doing that it's a huge opportunity Stuart well we talked about Netflix but another on demand service much in the news this week is Hulu uh, which um, is, is up for sale then it's not for sale up for sale not for sale this week not for sale again tell us a bit about it well I think it kind of illustrates the point that, that big media companies are worried about this and what they do so, so yeah Hulu is part owned by a number of studios in the States and they set it up launched it to have free ad supported films and TV shows with a premium layer so like, like a Spotify for TV and films and then they got nervous and thought, actually, we're going to sell this. They had loads of bids coming, I think. The bids were going quite high in, in hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. And they thought, no, we're not going to sell it. We're going to keep it because we probably should have a foot in this lark after all. I think because they're looking at things like Netflix and thinking we need to have something that's, that's ours because we can't control Netflix. Yes, I think it's sort of a bit of protectionism there. I mean, they weren't sure exactly what to do. They thought they should be, do something in the space. So they invested a lot of money so that they could you know, defend the principle and look proactive to their various shareholders. But it's not an entirely convincing principle. I think I'm right in saying they still haven't launched over here because they couldn't get the content deals in place. Um, and it's a, a bit of a lame duck. But it has done... I mean, it's, it's made quite a lot of money, I think. The revenue's been good. They used to have a CEO, didn't they? Jason Killar, his name was... He spoke a lot about where the industry was going, and he, by rumours account, he kind of pushed back against some of the studios trying to put restrictions on it, and then he left earlier in the year. So no one quite knows what direction it's going to go in. 
And the history of content owners running their own technology services hasn't been the noble one. This sector is just a, a long list of missed opportunities, I think, and Hulu is just one of them. Well, one undisputed success story in the on-demand area is, of course, the BBC's iPlayer. Uh, there was talk when Mark Thompson was still there about them charging for content. Uh, and it kind of feels like, uh, Stuart, are we waiting for sort of an iPlayer 2? Where do they go next with it? And are they going to start charging for archive content? I think they're, they're, they're charging elsewhere in the world, aren't they? They've, had, they've had launched an international iPlayer, which has been charging. Over here, I think the big trend for it actually is the, the, the mobile and tablet usage, which since they launched on iOS and Android has been really growing fast. And now I think, I'm not sure percentage, but a lot of their, their requests now come from mobile devices. But I think recommendations part of it. If you go to iPlayer now, it's still the main shows. It's not saying actually I know what you'd like this thing on BBC4 that you would have missed otherwise. So I think that's the next thing for memory is maybe to to try and put stuff in front of you you wouldn't have found otherwise you might have missed. Interesting to think back to the origins of the BBC and it, it was never specifically about television, it was about programmes and they used their engineering prowess to deliver those programmes to people in the best possible way. And I think if you were really being brave and bold with the BBC, you would see iPlayer as the future and television as kind of managing decline. And they're talking about commissioning shows for iPlayer first, I believe, as well. That's Aaron's right. There's the uh, yeah the PTK comedy, uh, which is going to be on BBC One eventually. It's going to debut exclusively on iPlayer for the for the whole run mm. before it goes on the BBC. So uh, we wait and see. Because there is a view, I think, like Netflix had that vision document saying we see the future as us against HBO, and that HBO will come from the content space and add digital distribution. We're coming from digital distribution. We'll add content. The BBC, you could argue, is doing the same thing. They're coming from content, but they've got the iPlayer as their way to think, and, and they could be one of those planks competing with HBO and Netflix. I, uh, I'm way ahead of the curve. I recently discovered the joys of 4OD. Uh, and you get the entire archive. All you've got to spend is two minutes filling out a little form. And so I can now watch GBH with Michael Palin and Robert Lindsay from the early 80s. It's because they'll make probably three times as much from advertisers if you, they can tell the advertisers roughly who you are. That's right. Well, you know, my instinct was go to Amazon, you know, spend 20 quid on a DVD, watch it once, go to the charity shop. No more. But I have got to watch it on my iPad, which I'm still, you know... Sorry, but it's not the same as your 42-inch screen uh, TV, is it? It's not, no. But if you buy a new device that's just come out from Google to compete with Apple TV, you will be able to uh, watch all that on your big fancy telly. Shall we talk about that next? Yeah, go on then, let's. So, Jemima Kish, I've got this friend who's got an iPad, uh, and he, he, he likes on-demand stuff. He doesn't like watching it in his iPad. He, he wishes there was some way he could get it to come up on his big screen TV. Can you help? Well, if you want to watch anything that's on YouTube or Netflix, you'll be able to buy a new gizmo. It's a dongle, actually. Oh, my favourite. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's about $35 is going to be the sale price in the state. So it's, it's about called, a thousand pounds, is it? <laughs> something like that. So it's called Chromecast, and you'll be able to stream stuff from your tablet or your phone through the dongle and watch it on your telly. It's basically a Google competitor for Apple TV. I like the sound of that. Although it doesn't work with 4OD, so it doesn't tackle my immediate problem. Well, not yet, but later, and I think it's just out in the US to start with, so you might have to hold on for a bit longer. Uh, Stuart, I have my, my attic, this is a source of some domestic um, irritation, an enormous box of cables, none of which I, I know what, you're what they do. what going to say then. No, I threw them out several years ago. But uh, I'm not entirely sure what any of these cables do, but you can't throw any of them away just in case one of them is very important for attaching your laptop to your TV or something. But, you know, a couple of years' time, got me a couple of dongles in my back pocket. They're all out the window. I mean, what a joy that will be. Proper wireless. Proper wireless until you, you think about how good your home broadband is. I mean, my, my home broadband falls over when I try and do anything complicated on it. 
But yes, no, it's all about wireless. It's all about, it's basically the, the, the vision people are holding out is that you're going to be sitting on your sofa with a tablet or smartphone in your hand and you will control what's on the TV screen with that rather than using this, this cumbersome remote control to navigate through menus on the screen. So that's where Apple and Google are hoping it goes. In fact, there's, there's a quote from a guy at Zbox once said, you can have a beautiful dumb TV in the corner and the smart device in your lap. It's not about smart TVs, it's about smart handheld devices. Well, Jemima, yeah, you touched on earlier about uh, interfaces and what Apple was doing with their interface. T tell us a bit about how you are going to communicate with your TV and choose what to watch if it's, if it's not through an old-fashioned EPG. Well, if anyone has used um, any of the gaming consoles that have you know, little cameras that respond to your motion, you'll know the basic principle there. So there are kind of gestures you could do, I don't know, wave your hands in the air to turn the television on kind of thing. But the, the other thing to think about is voice control and wearable technology like Google Glass is slightly, I mean, it's very much a kind of outsider uh, new technology at the moment, but this will become more and more mainstream and we'll get more and more used to, to voice input as a way of controlling things. And for a television, it makes perfect sense. Also, if you think about mobile phones, the speech input is getting very, very accurate. And the, there is a train of thought that says that perhaps you don't even need a screen on a mobile phone because you could do the whole lot through voice control. You know, I could just say, OK, phone, call John Plunkett, for example. And, you know, the same logic applies to your TV. I, mean, I, I saw a demo at a TV show recently where they used a Kinect camera with Xbox to show you two trailers for horror movies measure your face while you're watching the trailer and then recommend to you based on how scared you were during your <laughs> trailers. Because they are working on things like facial recognition, emotion recognition, and that's kind of pie-in-the-sky future stuff. But there's a lot of different ways to kind of get your input now. Like you say, voice, face. Yeah, so fiddling around on a remote control and kind of gently edging your way nudge by nudge through the alphabet to enter the search term that you want. So it can take a full two minutes to fire up iPlayer and find the program that you want. That's not the future. I've seen Facebook do a talk as well about saying that when you, wouldn't it be amazing if you turn a TV on and it tells you the first thing you see is the show that 17 of your Facebook friends are watching. And of course, that'd be marvellous for Facebook, obviously. But they were talking about that. They want to kind of get that kind of data filtering into what you, not even what you request, it's what, you, what shows up when you're thinking, I want something to watch. Why not use your friends as that first signal? Yeah, I quite agree. That should be absolutely the first thing that you see. It should be based on your browsing history, based on what your friends have watched, and then based on you know, your saved preferences or perhaps editor's picks or something. I can't believe this isn't already happening. Can you imagine the viewing figures for Great British Bake Off there? I mean, literally, I think every one of my friends on social media seems to watch that. <laughs> it would just have 100% viewing penetration. I don't want people to know I'm watching Super Tramping Concert from 1978. Well, I'm sure you'd be able to deselect the adult entertainment you might select later in the evening, John. Don't worry. I don't know why we keep returning to this theme. I was trying to move it on to prog rock. It was you that mentioned the box of snakes in the attic. Well, that's true, yeah. But uh, we're an equal opportunities uh, uh, tech media talk podcast. So uh, that's a bit of Apple. Uh, for balance, let's go back to Google again. And uh, they've, uh, this week they've launched something called Geek Week, which sounds uh, entirely aimed at our audience. Uh, Stuart, tell me, tell, with due respect to the listeners. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, media talk listeners, I'm not including you. Uh, but uh, Stuart, tell us about it. Yeah, so this is YouTube. It follows up, they had a comedy week recently, a, a week of themed stuff on YouTube. And now Geek Week is basically sci-fi, superheroes, computer games, and geek culture, which is essentially anything on are the th internet. Are they going to have reruns of the adventure game from the early 80s? Well, now you're talking. Oh, those were the golden years. Almost, almost. Well, they're, they're reviving a show called Nightmare, which I know... You're not, you don't know it, Jemima, do you? You're, you're younger than me. I know, Nightmare. So it was, it was a, the, one of the first virtual reality meets games in a show thing. And they're filming a new episode using young YouTube stars 
as its as its characters. And we look excited, John. Look excited. I am. Well, we wrote a story. I want to say this into my phone and say, <laughs> I want to watch Nightmare. And see what happens. Anyway, carry well, on. we wrote a story yesterday, and it went bonkers. It was the most popular story on a day after Apple's financial results on, on Guardian Tech. And the reason was not that it's nostalgia for an old show, but it was all these new YouTube starlets who have enormous followings on social media saying, "Yes, we're filming a show called Nightmare," and they probably haven't any idea what it is. And they've also got someone from Peep Show and someone from Harry Potter in it. It's kind of geek nirvana. But yeah, it's part of YouTube again saying, we've got money, we can commission stuff that the TV people have either let go or aren't doing. I have to say that with YouTube, I think this is one of, I keep talking about missed opportunities. This is possibly the biggest missed opportunity in television. Look at the scale of that site and the amount of content on it and the amount of young people it's engaging, how mobile friendly it is, how tablet friendly it is. I think far and away the best content proposition on that site has been Vivo and it's no coincidence that that is really beautifully crafted around a very specific content genre and I, I think every broadcaster, they are slowly edging on there and there are you know, broadcasters do have content, do have channels but they're really missing a trick. That, that could be one of the major broadcast platforms for the future and it's already there. Tell us about Vivo, people who don't know it. Vivo is music videos, it's a branded music video channel on YouTube. There's no particular reason why somebody would watch a video on a Vivo channel rather than a generic YouTube channel, but a test that they did recently, they had six times as many people watch on Vivo as they did on YouTube for a, a video of a, a gig that, um, oh, insert name of cool guitar band. Um, but they did a live gig and it was massively popular on Vivo. And I think that's because for consumers, they understand what they're getting there. And it's not just a generic, any old YouTube video, because it frames it. I mean, the other thing is YouTube is creating stars below the radar of the media industry. So there's a Swedish guy called PewDiePie, or PewDiePie who is this 20-something old Swedish bloke who basically uploads videos of himself playing games and cracking the sort of jokes 20-something-year-old men do. And he's got, I think it's 10 million subscribers for his YouTube channel, and his videos did like 210 million views last month. He's got this kind of prime-time TV-sized audience for stuff that even gamers who are 10 years older don't really understand why it would be popular. And he's come from nowhere, and he's, he's making decent money. So This, this is a ex beautiful example of mainstream niche. Channels around gaming, channels around comic stuff, they're, they're aggregating audiences around the world into this quite big hole. Nowadays, I think now the media industry is actually understand what's going on and is, is desperate to understand what it, how it can make use of it. But, but if, you're, if you're a star on YouTube, I mean, uh, how, how much money do you make? Can you make a living? Do you make your fortune? Or is YouTube an end in itself? Or is it, in fact, a, a means by way people get what they really want, which is a, a TV show? I think if you're one bloke with a webcam, it's a good living. There are companies emerging multi-channel networks who are actually trying to get loads of these stars together and make loads of money. They're finding it a bit harder, I think, to make as much money as they thought they would. It might be. I mean, there's a few Radio 1 DJs now who came from YouTube. So there is this path coming through to the media. And, and I think more TV companies will look at it and say, who's popping YouTube? Let's get them in. But yeah, I think for a lot of these people, you might find them saying, actually, we don't really want a TV career. We're doing quite fine as we are. We don't yeah. need to be... It's more than a feeder channel for talent. It's actually a massively successful and efficient distribution channel and I, I think there's just so much more to be done there Okay and just uh, away, away from the ad funded content YouTube subscription channels uh, Stuart, have they got off to a, did they get off to a slow start? They've got things like well partners like Sesame Street and uh, National Geographic and is it right you pay 99 cents a month? That's right yeah they launched them earlier in the year in a, it was a pilot they called it wasn't it I think That's, so yeah there's a, bunch, a few big media partners a few YouTube star partners 
just experiment and see if they can get people to pay for their YouTube stuff. And there was, a, it was I think it was Ade just someone did a report talking to them and saying, how's it been? And most of the people involved said, it's been a bit slow. We're finding it a bit tougher than we thought. It's not Untold Riches yet. Which, to which Google said, well, it's a pilot. We're just figuring out if there is demand for this stuff. So it's early days, but I don't think anyone's making big money from charging people on YouTube um, just yet. Okay, and finally, Jemima. I said we were an equal opportunities uh, uh, podcast when it comes to digital media giants. We haven't mentioned Microsoft, uh, and they're not the first company you think of when thinking about the future of TV. But I believe there's a, um, a, another gadget coming out. Xbox another One. gadget, yes. Yeah. Xbox One. Bigger than a dongle. The next generation. And smaller than a ZX Spectrum. Well, quite. Um, next generation gaming console. Um, gamers largely unimpressed by the fact that you can imagine the Microsoft executives in the boardroom saying, so we want to diversify our audience and have a more compelling mainstream consumer proposition. I know, let's make it an entertainment hub for the home. Utterly unconvincing. I always think of my mum in these scenarios, uh, who, <laughs> strangely, not a gamer. Um, so the gamers are completely unimpressed by this idea that this would be the central point of entertainment in your home. Um, because for most consumers, it's just not relevant. They just watch stuff on their telly. Why do they need effectively a small specialised computer to you know do Skype and watch YouTube and all the other stuff that you can do on a normal computer or already on your telly doesn't it mean you can get rid of your set top box and get rid of your DVD player and just have one box in the corner yes <laughs> and? I'm still uh, and I know why, but why would you do that if you're set top uh, and, and also who has a DVD player these days I'm sure my age well, uh, I, I was thinking that, John, actually. Yeah, I bought a Blu-ray. What an idiot. Oh, dear. Stuart, uh, Stuart. Well, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Because you think about the companies who want to be the thing, that the box that gives you your entertainment living room. You've got Apple and Google. You've got Samsung, Sony, Microsoft. You've got BT. You've got Virgin Media, Sky. All these companies are essentially competing for the one thing. They want to be that one box where you get your video, your music, your games. No one knows quite who's going to win yet or if they're going to sit together. And they're, and they're all trying to figure out, should they offer their own service? Like Microsoft has got its own music service, its own video store, but it also lets people like Spotify go on it. So these companies are competing with each other. They're trying to be on each other's boxes. And none of them yet have emerged as this is going to be the, the winning thing. It's really strange. Just n none of it is entirely compelling and, and, and really properly makes the most of all of the, these kind of amazing ingredients that they could make some beautiful proposition. I think for consumers, going back to apps and that popularity of that kind of pick and mix approach to building the media that you want consumers are more likely to pick by genre or a series that they love and that cuts across broadcasters and when there's a, a really compelling proposition around that I think we'll be starting to get somewhere this is my unimpressed face I'm afraid it is very unimpressed yeah. I mean, the other danger I think is you, with this competition you get the pressure for exclusives so you get, you're getting already in TV. Netflix has some things, Love Film has others. You don't have any, everything isn't available on every service. In music, Spotify has some exclusives. And you're going to end up as a, as a person sitting in the living room saying, I want to have everything, even if I buy it rather than streaming it. You're going to have to sign up to lots of different services and it's not very friendly. No, it's really not. I want to pay, you know, I'll pay 50, 100 quid a month even, but I just want unlimited, all the stuff I want. I want them to suggest stuff to me. I want it to be as lean back as possible because that's what television should be about. And which talking which, when's, when's the new series of Homeland coming? November. November, is it? <laughs> I expect you to know this. Well, it's I was, October. I, Can't was wait. To, I was trying to watch Game of Thrones for the week. And so did I, I just didn't understand yeah. it. But, but you, so, you, you but might how, struggle with it. How do you reasons. get Game of Thrones in the UK digitally if you, if you haven't got Sky? 
you, you, you can't go buy it on iTunes. You can't stream it on Netflix. It's on, I think it's on Blinkbox, which is kind of a slightly more obscure. So, like, literally, there's a big show, one of the biggest shows in the world right now. It's very hard to watch it digitally if you're not on a certain pay TV service. And that we're seeing a lot of that still, even though this, we're in this era where everything is supposed to be at hand easily on your TV, we're still a long way from, from being there. Which takes us back, Jemima, to your example of when you go on Twitter and say to your followers, what should I watch tonight? And you get 26 recommendations, but you haven't got the right platform for any of them. You have to go back and say, oh, no, I haven't got that. So, yeah, it needs a big shakedown. Do some of these companies need to fail? A bit like Betamax and VHS, do we get one that everyone's got? It's just like a negative thought. No, failure is good because it means that we're learning about stuff that doesn't work and you should be able to infer from that what does work. I think people will pay and they'll pay good money to get stuff like Game of Thrones in advance. I don't, I'm not sure there's enough of that going on. And the other thing, not to drag the conversation back down to the gutter, but... Who, not who, back to my attic who, again, who's got, who's Lay got off the, my Who's attic. got the pawn? Because traditionally, BHS v Betamax, the big thing there was who had the adult content. I believe there are some websites where you can look at it. Yeah, well, but, but soon we'll have to opt in with the thing. But yeah. Speak for yourself, Stuart. All, I mean, it's interesting that like, Apple have a certain attitude towards adult content. Netflix don't really carry. So that's the other thing, is, is that traditionally, you, it's been the adult content that's tipped the balance when a particular format's one over the other. But this time around, they're all quite prudish. Maybe that's because we're getting it elsewhere, I don't know. Or say we, en masse. I, I think it's the royal we, yeah. as in the world. <laughs> exactly. It could be good news for news agents everywhere, yeah? Yeah, as, anyway. long, as long as it's shown from uh, adult eye level and upwards, yeah. From the attic to the gutter and back again. My thanks to Stuart Dredge and Jemima Kish. Welcome back, and it's time now for the third part of our Tech Media Talk Weekly. I think I've got that right, and uh, I've got my second cup of uh, Americano, uh, or, or Long Black, as I should be called. And uh, apparently with a, a children's milkshake, by the looks of it, it's uh, Rebecca Nicholson, the Guardian's TV and radio editor. What, what are you drinking there, Rebecca? I'm drinking an iced coffee. I, you know, it's warm in here. We're currently sitting beside a video of a fire, <laughs> which is making me feel very toasty. I tried to find a, 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 a one of the icebergs. But they've all melted, apparently. <laughs> so we've only, we've only got the fire. Well, it uh, feels like the time we should talk TV, seeing as that is what you edit. That is what I do. Uh, what's first up on the uh, conveyor belt of uh, small screen delights? I thought we could say a fond farewell to Luther. Luther? finished this week. Hooray! It's, hooray that it finished. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to fight about this. It's bringing the whole channel down. <laughs> it's the last ever episode on TV there may yet be a film and there may yet be oh a spin off with my favourite character Alice who made an appearance in the last ever episode thankfully because as much as I love it and I do love it and we can talk about why you don't if you must but you're wrong it felt like this last series was a tiny tiny bit not as good as the other ones and so Alice appeared for the last episode camped it up a treat ran around London being a terrible sort of noirish villain slash heroine and was brilliant is Alice the bonkers psychic that was in the first ever episode? Yes. She is, the reason I, she is the reason I stopped watching it <laughs> when I tuned in for the second week. And she was still in it. I thought she was just still an incidental in character. She's in it loads in the first series, oh. then only in the last episode of the second series, and same again last episode of the third. How can you not like Alice? They've got less chemistry than a Latin GCSE. How many, how many episodes have you seen? One and a bit. <laughs> <laughs> It did all right and business for BBC episode, One, didn't it? it Five did million, six million, but... I think it's not bad. Mm. We did a series blog on the site. People really wanted to talk about it, so that's good. But I just thought it was really fun. 
I love Luther. I think people had misconceptions about what it was going to be and expected it to Good. be a kind of, well, <laughs> I think more of a straight detective show. Oh. And its tone is quite weird. It's quite kind of, I interviewed the cast and crew for this series and they kept saying things like cartoon and kind of graphic novel and things like that. And I think that's the tone of it. It's over the top, it's preposterous. Idris Selber is hammy as... Hammy is some ham. Leg of pork. A leg of pork. <laughs> so you got here's, here's the ham, and his sidekick's the cheese. Oh. So you got a good toasty, but not a very good TV series. What do you think you they should do with the film? With what should they do with the film? Uh, Set I don't it know in what Norwich. They, can do. They, they might have to do a prequel because it felt quite final, um, which makes me think it may not happen, but who knows? Who knows? Set maybe, it in Norwich. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. We have a satellite delay here at the Guardian Coffee Sorry. House. Yeah. That iced milkshake thing. Ah. No strength to it. Maybe they could do it in his school days. Yeah. <laughs> he was the Just walking around in his grotty blazer. Yeah. Yeah. World's most irritating prefect. <laughs> right, so no more Luther. No more Luther. But more phone shop. Phone shop, one of my favourites. I have a very, very soft spot for phone shop. Producer Matt is looking at me like I've just landed from another planet. But then we've got different tastes. Yeah, that's not as we discovered with Count Arthur Strong last week. Phone shop. E4 comedy and I think there's a lot of snobbery around E4 comedies people tend to write them off as being populist and not very good um, with the exception of course of the in-betweeners Hooray! I think Phone Shop is hilarious and I'm really glad that it's back and I watched the, the first episode of the new series today the plot is very simple they accidentally eat some uh, hash muffins <laughs> that's it whatever they and are and then whatever they are I have no idea and then uh, spend the rest of the episode dealing with the effects of that <laughs> while serving customers in a phone shop. Well, they try, but that's not really what happens. But the best part is the manager of the phone shop reveals quite early on that he is a new member of the White Man's Reggae Club. <laughs> that runs through the whole episode. And it's one of the funniest things I've seen in ages. It's fantastic. I reckon when it first came out, I speak as someone who's never seen any of it, that uh, people were a bit snobbish because it was a bit like The Office, except in a phone shop. But now that's, that's long enough ago, and now it's got its own kind of vibe. Oh, so I don't think it's not a mockumentary and it's sillier than The Office it, it's just very very daft and they do all of these kind of I think it's partly improvised um, they credit the cast for coming up with some of the material and you can really tell that they well, have, media talk they have <laughs> partly improvised <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it a go because I'm giving give I'm giving, I'm giving family tree a go so frankly I'll, I'll take all comers <laughs> well I did I did say that I would stick with that last week and have so far failed to I'm going through a phase where I can't watch a whole programme. No. Of anything. No. That must be difficult for... I've, I've done Top of the Two episodes, Top of the Lake, in about ten sittings. Yeah. I think it means it's not very good. I like Top of the Lake a lot, but because I'm going on holiday, I've had to watch three episodes of it this week, and I'm, it's intense. It's starting to really drag me down. The joys lie. of being the TV editor. Three episodes. Yeah, you just get all this stuff. I'm feeling really depressed. Are you? I feel like I need a holiday, so I'm really earning it. I saw there was a light coming up through the the plug in the shower that was the last thing I saw okay I've seen two after that I think that's a red herring a very shiny red herring yeah I don't want to spoil it for you but it doesn't get any cheerier right okay I like um, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal that's not her name is it but I like her Australian accent <laughs> Which, Elizabeth, oh, uh, Moss. Elizabeth Moss well it's supposed to be a New Zealand accent I think via Australia okay which I think is their way of explaining why the accent is so up and she down she sounds kind of English she sounds kind of English yeah. a bit American a bit New Zealand, a bit Australian. I'm going to keep watching it in bits. But she got a nem- Emmy, her Nemi nomination. Or, or <laughs> she would say in a Kiwi accent, an Emmy. <laughs> uh, right, what's next? What's next? Uh, next is Dara O'Brien Science Club, which is the second series. And it's kind of like Horizon 
wearing a CBeebies jacket, but for grown-ups. CBeebies? I mean, it's for grown-ups. It's for grown-ups, but the set looks very like a kind of children's set, and they explain science with these lovely chats and VTs. I enjoyed it. I think Horizon has, in fact, we've got a blog on the site about this very subject today, but Horizon, in a way, has started to influence everyday life like the 5-2 diet came from an episode of Horizon and the now what that's did? the 5-2 diet you're really not keeping up with current affairs 5-2 was it so I, I eat five, five slices of cake and you eat two <laughs> let's try that you fast for five days and you can eat what you want for two oh, well, <laughs> yeah. who'd have thought that'd help you lose weight <laughs> <No>. <laughs> not but eating I mean, for five days you can eat what days. you want you can eat anything really um, well you'd have to wouldn't you you'd be starving you'd be starving but it's huge it's what a, a massive, ridiculous massive thing is it lots of people are doing it it's really? a huge thing but that came from an episode of Horizon could you do a 2-5 diet I mean I don't think it'd be very effective no okay just well you fast just have water no, you ha- I think you're allowed up to 500 calories a day and then on the normal days, eat, eat what you want. You won't want to blow that on a packet of Smarties, would you? You, you want to make sure I'd your calories so are, are big earners. Yeah, I think you have to put a lot of them into green. I know a lot of people who are doing this. It involves a lot of green tea. And I, I hope the BBC have commercially exploited this. I, uh, I suspect they have with a best-selling the book. BBC Worldwide. Yeah, that's doing very well. But Anyway, Dara anyway, what's his name? So this kind of feels like that sort of thing. like popular. It's popular science, basically but with a nice kind of Is shiny it good science set. Though, yeah? I enjoyed it. It's interesting, but Did you learn I stuff? almost feel like I wanted more. And I'm not one to sit through dense science programs, but I think Horizon does popular science very well. And this sort of feels like the halfway ground that nobody quite needs. It's enjoyable, but I don't really know what the point of it is. That's damning, yeah. isn't it? You stick that on the DVD box set. <laughs> it's enjoyable, but pointless. Is it as good as Richard Hammond's Man Lab? Or no, or was it James May's Man Lab? <laughs> Surprisingly, I didn't watch Did James you know, May's yeah. Man Lab. <laughs> he tried to create a man from it nothing. Sounds like <laughs> no. something that should be on Late Night Channel Five. I forget. It's one of those things. There's slight BBC obsession with sort of crazy graphics. You know, arrows coming in from the left-hand side and sort of Monty, you know, Terry Gilliam-esque kind of big feet stomping on things. How manly was it? Uh, well, it's too manly for me, but <laughs> you know, uh, loose women's too manly for me. So it doesn't say a lot, frankly. <laughs> one final thing, and uh, no offence, Rebecca, but I'm sick of listening to you talk about TV you've seen. So I'm going to talk about a bit of TV I've seen. Or stop watching it more accurately, The Americans. I stopped watching The Americans too. Good for one episode, crock of crap for the rest. I lasted four, and then I just thought, this isn't getting better. This is really trashy. Made the second series of Homeland look like like the first series of Homeland. It was that that bad. It was that bad. Yeah, I was very disappointed. I had high hopes, and uh, you know, the word word from across the pond, as they say, was really positive. Everyone said it was great. It was kind of, yeah, Mad Men meets Homeland. But I just thought it was dreadful. Didn't really make sense and nothing really happened. And oh. It was hammier than a hammy <laughs> leg of ham. <laughs> but with no cheese. But with no cheese. So, very boring. <laughs> well, that's enough TV for this week. And in fact, that's it for the entire podcast. My thanks to all the guests who were Rebecca Nicholson and Jemima Kish and Stuart Dredge. You can leave your thoughts on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at John Plunkett 149 I hear that Tech Weekly is taking a holiday for the next few weeks, so uh, tech fans, why not subscribe to the Guardian Media Talk? They'll be back before you know it. Media Talk is produced as ever by Mr. Matt Hill, and we've been at the Guardian Coffee Shop in Shoreditch. My name is John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.